The following program is brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novos Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovosOrdoWatch.org. That's NovosOrdoWatch.org. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Anti-Modernist Reader on the member-supported Restoration Radio Network. I'm your host, Matthew Gaskin, and on this episode, I'm delighted to be joined again by His Lordship Bishop Sanborn of Most Holy Trinity Seminary, Brooksville, Florida. Hello, my Lord. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. This episode is a only episode and is not available for individual purchase and download. To receive access to all Restoration Radio episodes, please visit www.truerestoration.org forward slash radio and go to the member area on the menu bar to find out details on becoming a member. In this show, we will cover part one and part two of this document that His Lordship wrote in 1992. Most traditional Catholics are very lucky in not having to actually read the documents of the post-Vatican II antipopes. Catholics who do read these documents are immediately struck by the new ecclesiology that is, the question of what constitutes the Catholic Church. Modernist buzzwords like particular churches, partial communion, and the people of God litter these tracks. This show will focus on the critical question of what Catholics traditionally mean by the word communion before we go on to identify and refute the modern errors in the next show. My Lord, I believe I've got the background right there. So to get us started, and if you have nothing else to, uh, or if you have no corrections for me, I would like to ask you the obvious question of what does the word communion mean in the traditionally Catholic sense? It means the connection of the Catholic faithful to the head of the church and their own interconnection with one another, which results from their connection to the head of the church. That's a single-sentence definition of it, but there's much to explain about it. The church is the organization, we might say, that is founded by our Lord Jesus Christ, which has both an interior soul and an exterior body. And the communion of Catholics with the Pope and with the with each other depends upon their membership both in the exterior body and uh, in the interior as well. So there there are two aspects of uh, communion. So so from there we we should go to the teaching of the Church concerning what exactly this communion consists of. The Catholic Church is the mystical body of Christ. That is, 
when we say mystical, we mean a spiritual body, in the sense that, not that it is a spiritual, purely spiritual organization, but it's distinguished from a physical body. There is the physical body of Christ, which we could touch uh, if we saw him in the Holy Land 2,000 years ago. That's the physical body of Christ. But the Church is, and this is from St. Paul, his mystical body, that is, it is organized in the same way as his body, that is, he is the head of it, and there are parts to his body, so also he is the head of the Church, and all of the members of the Church are connected to him and to one another through this association with him as the head. And we know that the Pope of Rome is the vicar of Christ on earth, and therefore the exterior connection uh, in the body of the Church depends upon our submission to the Pope of Rome. Mm-hmm. Now, Pope Leo XIII teaches that the unity of the Church is threefold. There is the unity of faith, and the unity of government, and the unity of communion. The unity of faith is that unity which is affected by the profession of the same faith of all the members. That is, that they all adhere to the same dogmas, and the same moral teachings that are prescribed by the Catholic Church in her magisterium. The unity of government is the submission of all of the members of the Church and the mystical body. They are the same thing. The Catholic Church and the mystical body are exactly the same thing. Uh, The submission uh, to the government of the Church, which consists of the Pope and uh, bishops who are in communion with the Pope. And he says there is a unity of communion, and he says that This is affected by the unity of government and consists in the mutual bonds which exist among the faithful resulting from their relation to one head. So we get a picture of it already that there is a a dependence on the head for communion, but it is not merely a whole bunch of people uh, that are related simply to the head. They are related to each other. It is a body, and there is an interaction and an an intercommunion, we might say, with each other because they are subjected to the head. Mm -hmm. He says, finally, it, the Church, is the body of Christ. That is, of course, his mystical body, but a body living and duly organized and composed of many members. Members, indeed, which have not all the same functions, but which, united one to the other, are kept bound together by the guidance and the authority of the head. The Catholic notion is very clear. Simply that there is an interconnection uh, among the members of the Church with one another because they are connected to the head, and they constitute a body, and that is the mystical body. Pius XII points out that as the mystical body, the bonds of union which exist between the diverse members of the Church are supernatural and are superior to the bonds found in ordinary human societies. So that means you are more bound to fellow Catholics than you would be even to members of your family. 
the, the bonds are stronger and higher. Uh, hopefully the members of your family are also Catholics. But the, the bonds that, for example, bind you to mother, father, brother, sister, are not as strong as the bonds that unite you to fellow Catholics. And we see that, you know, here we are, you are born and raised in, in the United Kingdom, I'm born and raised in the United States, and yet we have a commonness that transcends all of the differences between those two countries and culture, uh, thankfully not language, but, well, you might say something different about that, but, you know, we're pretty close. There's a, an immediate bond that you have with Catholics. If you even if you meet a Catholic who doesn't speak your language at all and with whom you cannot even communicate, there is already a bond, and that bond is that supernatural communion that exists between Catholics, because they are experiencing the same grace of God, the same faith. They are bound in the same organization under the Pope. And, and that, that is uh, uh, the effect of, of supernatural grace. And it is a beautiful thing. It, it, gives, it is the effect of the unity of the Church. Uh, and, and that's why Catholics all over the world can go to the same Mass in no matter in, in any church, uh, uh, Catholic Church in, in any part of the world. They are, are subject to the same laws. It's just a beautiful thing that doesn't exist in any other way in, in, on the face of the earth. There is no universal church on the face of the earth, earth except the Catholic Church. Uh, and, and that's a, a bond that, that doesn't exist in any other circumstance, even national bonds and, and family bonds. They, they, they do not exist uh, like that. that, that immediate community that you feel with someone who is Catholic. So uh, that's, that's the uh, Catholic notion of communion. And there are different teachings uh, of different theologians. Uh, you know, they talk about it a little differently here and there, but they're saying essentially the same thing. The common teaching of theologians uh, concerning the unity of the Church is that the Catholic Church enjoys a threefold unity, that of faith, government, and worship. Uh, now, this is very close to what Leo XIII said. The unity of faith, as I said, is that all believe the same thing. The unity of government is that all are submitted to the same hierarchy of the Catholic Church. And the unity of worship is that all have the same mass and sacraments, essentially the same. That is, because you could have a certain diversity of rite. The Eastern rites, for example are quite different from the Roman rite, but they are Catholic rites. That is, they are rites which show forth the Catholic doctrine of the Mass, of the priesthood, of the Holy Eucharist, in their ceremonies, their words, their prayers, their movements and gestures, symbolism, etc. That's a Catholic rite. Even in the Western rites, you have various places like Lyon and Milan and uh, and in, in the uh, in the Middle Ages, you had a much greater diversity of rites before it was all codified by St. Pius V. But they are all Catholic rites and essentially the same. That's the unity of worship of the Catholic Church. The sacraments are all essentially the same, whether given in the Eastern rites or whether given in the Western rites. They are all essentially the same. 
one theologian says, so in its unity of faith, of hierarchy, and worship, the church stands undivided in itself and divided from anything else. So it's very important that it is a single body, and just as you are not your next-door neighbor, you are united in yourself, and you are not the person next to you, uh, so also the church is united and undivided in itself, and it is divided from everything else. That means any kind of organ- ecclesiastical organization that does not have this communion and these points of, of unity, which I just described, is outside the Catholic Church and therefore illegitimate because it is not founded by Christ. Anything at all, whether it's the Anglican Church or the Presbyterian Church, whether it's the Greek schismatics, they are not part of the Church of Christ. They are not part of the mystical body which has been founded by Christ. As schismatics or as heretics or as bodies that are separated from the Catholic Church, they have no part with Christ. Uh, We're speaking objectively here. We're not speaking about people who may be erring in good conscience. We're speaking objectively that they have no part with Christ. As a matter of fact, as churches, they don't even exist. They, they, They have no license to exist from God. If you're a church, you have to have some some authorization to exist from God. And these these churches uh, have either fallen off the Catholic Church like branches from a vine and are now dried up and rotting, or they are uh, inventions of human beings like the Protestant churches. They're inventions of the human being of human beings and have no authority to exist. It would be something like setting yourself up as as a medical doctor without any authorization from anybody. Just hang hang a, a sign out from from your house that I'm a medical doctor. Basically, <laughs> a, a quack. <laughs> yes, we call those quacks too. Yes. So it it, it doesn't have any existence. It, all all they are are groups or organized groups of heretics or organized groups of schismatics. That's the only, you know, there's a certain organization they have, and as an organization it exists, but as a church it does not exist. Uh, it's just it's, uh, groups of schismatics that have organized themselves in a certain way, or groups of heretics that have organized themselves in a certain way, because they are divided from the true Church of Christ. It's a very important point. This is all the traditional teaching of the Church concerning itself. And this is all documented by teachings of popes and of theologians commenting on on all of these things. And there is no disagreement. Uh, There's there's no... Everybody says the same thing. Uh, So it's important to understand that before going into the major changes of Vatican II concerning this doctrine. When I was in my early 20s, I went to uh, to France with uh, a couple of French friends. And um, I was still well and truly in the SSPX uh, organization at that point. But they, like a lot of French semi-traditional Catholics, they had to go to a church on the Sunday. A church, it didn't really matter which one it was, it just a church. And they couldn't get to a Latin Mass, so they went to the Novus Ordo. And said, do you want to come along? And I I thought, well, I'll go along and sit at the back because I just want to see what's going on. 
Um, because I'd never, as much as the SSPX is awful, I had never been to uh, I'd never been to Minnesota, so I didn't know what it, what it was like. Now my French isn't terrible. I speak a little bit of French at least, and I, I can understand a little bit. But I went to that church, and I felt it was just I was on another planet. It was completely different. Yet at Christmas time this year, I had the fortune to go to Budapest. I didn't speak a word of Hungarian. But as soon as I stepped into that chapel, I felt completely at home. I knew exactly what was going on. Everything was fine. I didn't need to speak Hungarian. It wasn't the Novus Order in Hungarian, which means I wouldn't have understood anything. You you felt completely at home because you have that communion with those people because you all think, or more or less think, and act the same way and have the same views on, on the same things. I think that's part of at least part of what uh what the communion is yes yes that's uh, and you agree on all of the highest principles of life it's not that you agree about hungarian goulash how wonderful it is. <laughs> you, you you agree about the highest principles of life and all uh, uh, the dogmas of the church the moral teachings of the church that those things are guiding your life and are in the driver's seat of your mind, and mm-hmm. that you order your life in principle to all of those doctrines and moral teachings. In principle, that doesn't say that we are, you know, any of us is sinless, but in principle we order them. And when we sin, we go to confession to reorder our lives to those very principles. That's what you feel in common, yes. I mean, the first time I went to Budapest, I, mean, I don't even know how to say hello in Hungarian. I realized that the other day. I'm about to go to Budapest in a few weeks, and I don't know how to say hello or thank you. I don't know how to say anything in Hungarian. And yet, as you say, you walk into a chapel. These are people that are totally alien to you, never seen them before in your whole life, and you feel an immediate communion with them and they with you because of Catholicism. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, that, that is, as I said, a beautiful thing that is God-given. And Vatican II completely destroyed that idea. And I was thinking about this on the train into work this morning, actually. I was thinking about this show. And at the same time, I was reading up on, uh, just on, on my phone about my mother's side is uh, McLaughlin, which is the same uh, clan as the McLachlans from Argyllshire in Scotland. And so I was reading something about McLachlans on the train on the way into work. And I was thinking, I have more in common with those clansmen who went and died at Culloden. I have more in common with them than I do with the person sitting next to me on the train. Because at least they were Catholics. That's right. Yes. Yes, it's a very deep commonness, very, very deep, and it transcends blood, deeper than blood. Uh, And that's why people who are Catholic sometimes feel much more commonness with their Catholic friends than they do with their Novus Ordo or paganized relatives, much more. (laughs) They would rather spend their holidays with their Catholic friends than with their families in many cases. I I know that from a lot of people, because it's just, what do you talk about except football, uh, the weather, other things that will not cause controversy and which are of very low interest from the point of view of human intellectuality. I mean, you know, how much can you talk about football? The news, maybe. (laughs) 
what Donald yeah. Trump said recently, or, or <laughs> uh, you know, the that's it. And then you run out of things to talk about. You can't talk about anything deep uh, for fear of getting into some horrid argument. Uh, and and then you you, you know, just content yourself with that. And yeah. uh, whereas you know, when you're with friends who are are good Catholics, uh, they they find all sorts of things to talk about and a, and a very deep commonness. That is a, a sign of that communion. Uh, that's a, mm-hmm. a sign of that communion that, that we're talking about. And, and it's affected only by those, by submission to the Roman pontiff, by unity of faith, unity of sacraments, uh, uh, that those, those three unities that are proper to the Catholic Church and which are affected by the assistance of the Holy Ghost to the Catholic Church. Now, on page 95, You've established in the article the threefold uh, unity of faith, government, and worship. And uh, a bit further down, you say these three things must be taken together and formally. Could you explain why we must take these together and formally? Well, think of a triangle missing one of its angles. <laughs> it's not a triangle. Okay. Uh, <laughs> That's about it. Uh, together, uh, and this is a quote from a theologian, because unless taken together, they do not show the church one and whole. Just as unless you have the three angles of the triangle, it does not show the whole triangle. Uh, it has to cohere together by these three principles. That's what it means. Formally, because the material fact must adhere to the firm stable, and constitutive principle of unity. So, in other words, the material organization of the Church must be animated by these principles of unity. It is not enough simply to have a Church organization. Uh, it is not enough simply to have members. These members must be united by these very unities, and all three of them. Take away one, and you you ruin the whole thing. I always use the example of putting a pin in a balloon. Right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the there is a very big difference between a balloon that's blown up and a balloon with a pin in it. You take away the integrity of the skin by putting the pin in it, and it of course blows up. And the same is true uh, if you take away one of these principles of unity, you put a pin in the balloon because the whole thing, just like the triangle, depends upon the integrity of these three unities, just as the triangle depends on the integrity of the three angles. Otherwise, it loses its definition as triangle, three angles. Mm-hmm. See, so the same is true. You've quoted Pope Leo Thirteenth, Pope Pius XII, uh, in, in case anybody ever uh, levels the accusation that, uh, that this article is not legitimately backed up. You then quote Cardinal Franzel and Cardinal Bio, and then at the bottom here, at the bottom of page 96, uh, I saw something which sort of caught my eye, because most Catholics don't think about this. You quote St. Thomas, and St. Thomas says that schism, he's talking about schism, you know, i.e. lack of communion. Schism is possible in two ways, either by refusing to be submitted to the Roman pontiff, or by refusing to be in communion with members of the church subjected to him. Now, when we think of schism, we normally think of the former. 
and not the yeah. latter. Why Correct. is it? Why is it that the latter is also so important, and why doesn't Thomas specify that? Well, it would be like saying uh, your father and mother are the same as my father and mother, but you're not my brother. <laughs> okay, <laughs> that's pretty clear. <laughs> uh, that the there's a necessary effect caused by being uh, uh, generated by the same parents, you cannot escape the fact that the, the person that came out of the same womb from the same father is your sibling. That, that's an inescapable thing. So if you were to deny that relationship, you know, and it's analogous in the church, if you were to deny that connection, which is the effect of the unities, which I spoke about earlier, then you have broken the skin of the balloon, and that is you are uh, necessarily denying the the principle of unity. You cannot have the same mother and father without having the relationship of sibling. So uh, the same is true. You cannot have a common head, Christ, and his vicar, the Pope, without having the relationship that exists between the members of the Catholic Church. And so that constitutes a schism. So this poses a problem, even if you uh, even if you approach it from this point of view, for the R and R crowd, because they would probably say that they're not in communion with their sort of extraordinary ministers and uh, Eucharistic ministers and uh, female altar servers and all that sort of thing. They would probably say some of them would probably say they're not in communion with them. Yet they would both both groups there would claim to be in communion with the Pope. Yes, that is a problem, and it goes back to their uh, fundamental problem, and that is that they have never identified the Novus Ordo as Catholic or Mm non-Catholic. And when I say the Novus Ordo, I mean the whole thing, not just the Mass. That is Vatican II, its doctrines, the whole new religion, let's call it. They have never, and I'm referring to SSPX and others like them, have never come out and said, well, the new religion of Vatican II is substantially Catholic or is not substantially Catholic. And so, therefore, they they say contradictory things. Uh, for example, how could you uh, aspire to be part of the Bergoglio Church, let's call it, or, or to be in communion with Bergoglio and his hierarchy, and at the same time say that new religion is false. And again, they say things that would lead you to believe both sides here and there. For example, I at the beginning of this article, I quote Father Schmidtberger. Now, this is a long time ago. <laughs> but he says, we have never wished to belong to this system which calls itself the conciliar church and identifies itself with the Novus Ordo Missae. The faithful indeed have a strict right to know that the priests who serve them are not in communion with a counterfeit church. Now, that sounds pretty strong. That that therefore, I would say he he thinks that the new religion is false and that that it must be rejected. But yet there are many other quotations that would lead you to believe that they don't think it's false and actions speak louder than words. If they are willing to come in and be a side chapel of tradition in the modernist cathedrals, 
Well, if you're on the turf of the modernists, you are implicitly saying that the modernists are Catholics, perhaps a little misled and and a little imperfect, but nonetheless Catholics, and that the new religion, Catholic, and that Vatican II was the work of the Holy Ghost, and we just want to function in this uh, new religion by preserving tradition because we're more sensitive to those things. Now, that's what you're saying when, when you want to sign up with them. And they have desired to sign up with them ever since they have been separated from them. Re- mm-hmm. You recall that the Society of St. Pius X started out as being a traditional branch of the Novus Ordo Church. They were founded by, uh, or the Novus Ordo religion, I should say. They were founded by the Novus Ordo hierarchy. They got certain temporary approval from the Novus Ordo hierarchy, and then they were suppressed by the Novus Ordo hierarchy. And ever since they were suppressed, they have tried to regain this status, uh, this legal status with the Novus Ordo hierarchy. Now, what does that say? Uh, you know, and I remember I lived in the Society of St. Pius X when they had approval, and the whole idea that Archbishop Lefebvre talked about and others was to somehow function within the Novus Ordo to, for example, uh, operate seminaries in certain dioceses for the bishops who wanted a, a more conservative approach. There was a bishop in Argentina who proposed that, and also a bishop in Italy that desired the same thing, and, and the Archbishop Lefebvre was very happy about that idea. But, you know, then uh, if you saw Father Chicada's recent video, quoting <laughs> Archbishop Lefebvre many times, and those are all accurate quotes, indicating that the new religion is is a false religion and that those who adhere to it are outside the church to the extent that they do adhere to it. Very, very clear declarations that it isn't Catholicism. (laughs) So, uh, I'm only only laughing because the the Twitter stream of a recently released anti-Sedificantist book that shall go unnamed has gone absolutely bananas since Father Chicago Chik- <laughs> <laughs> <Chikata> released that <laughs> video. <laughs> he's, ruffled, he's ruffled a few feathers, that's for sure. <laughs> well, the beauty of that video is, what can you say? These are quotes from Archbishop Lefebvre. Who's going to, to say he's wrong? Who's going to refute him? Who are they uh, to judge? Yes, who are we to <laughs> judge? I mean, all Father Chicago did was, was really tell what Archbishop Lefebvre said. And although Archbishop Lefebvre never declared himself as a Sedevacantist, nonetheless, as Father Chicada says, he repeatedly gave all the principles of Sedevacantism. Repeatedly did. And, you know, some people drew the conclusions. You know, if you want to follow what that book says, you would have to consider him, in that case, an enemy of the Church, and uh, something like the unfaithful Jews, that's what they call Sedevacantists, that yep. we are enemies, and, and just like the unfaithful Jews. I mean, you know, all of those epithets would have to be applied to Archbishop Lefebvre, who said that Sedevacantism has a, a probable basis, I and mean, it has a, a basis in sacred theology as a basis in fact. It's not something that is outlandish to say. Uh, it, it it has, uh, and, and he even said, you know, it might be necessary one day that we say it ourselves. Mm-hmm. So it, it, it takes the, com- the rug completely from under that. 
their highest authority. I mean, it's very well done, and I I think very necessary because they don't realize, I think, all of that history of Archbishop Lefebvre, which we do. We're old-timers. We were there. We heard it. We we heard him say these things. So, therefore, even, you know, we we find a, a basis for what we're saying and doing in Archbishop Lefebvre himself. You know, so... I am sure that's why they're going bananas, because there's no real response that they can give to that. You know, nice. All of those quotations are, are verifiable. It's wonderful. I, I think the, the best one was one that they probably were not prepared for because it was done at the table in Oyster Bay, and that is, I don't say that the Pope is not the Pope, but I don't say either that one cannot say that the Pope is not the Pope. That is not in the Lefebvre canon, because it was pronounced verbally at the table, and it was heard yeah. only by a few priests, but he said it. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> I think that, that was one that probably they were not prepared for. Mm-hmm. So, so uh, that, yeah, that's, that's the SSPX footnote. Yes. <laughs> so, that, so, well, I'm sure there might be one or two more of them as we go through this yes. show and the next show. But their whole position, um, you know, what you've said about the fact they wanted to be a, a conservative force within the Novus Order initially. At the top of page 97, you quote uh, Michel in the Dictionnaire de Théologie Catholique, and he says, this communion, he's t- again, he's talking about communion, this communion, and you have to think about this in terms of the uh, SSPX and those like them, it implies, first of all, the adherence of intellects to the same faith, as well as the cohesion of wills under the impulsion of the supreme head. Thus, to the exterior unity of faith and government, one must also add the coherence of the members among themselves. So the first, really the first two things, it implies, first of all, the adherence of intellects to the same faith, as well as the cohesion of wills under the impulsion of the supreme head. Now, where, with the Novus Ordo, is their adherence of intellects to the same faith or the cohesion of wills under the impulsion of the supreme head? Well, certainly the unity of faith does not exist in the Novus Ordo. You can believe whatever you want. Uh, the the uh, figures for those who do not believe in transubstantiation in the Novus Ordo is positively appalling, or are positively appalling. Uh, or those who do believe in, in contraception, artificial contraception, is, again, uh, absolutely appalling. Uh, completely repudiating the teaching of the Church on that. And then we saw recently that uh, Bergoglio confirmed that, that uh, it is not something intrinsically evil and can be done under certain circumstances. Um, that uh, So you have a complete breakup of unity of faith uh, in, in the Novus Ordo, and that is a certain sign that it is a new religion and is not the Catholic religion. Uh, the... Uh, the Novus Ordo has a certain unity of government. In other words, you have bishops that are, are uh, in principle, under a single head, uh, a pope, uh, you know, a Novus Ordo pope. To a certain extent, they, they do what he says. And that's the only thing really left of Catholicism in that whole thing, that they have continued the, the same organizational structures as Catholicism. So that's the only thing left in them. But that remnant of it does not qualify them as, as something Catholic. It's just, a, just as the Greek Orthodox have certain remnants, just as the Protestants have certain remnants, uh, 
of Catholicism. It doesn't qualify them as as the true church or the true representatives of Christ. But yet that's what people see. They see the the continuity of the organization and they say, well, that must be Catholic. They do not see the content of the organization, that is the faith and the moral teachings and the unity of faith that must be present for Catholicism. They ignore all that. They just see a, a continuity, just like a, a corporation goes from decade to decade producing the same thing, you know, General Motors or something else, and pay no attention to the spiritual aspects of the church for which the external structures exist. The external structures are there for the interior graces and everything that happens in the soul. It's not vice versa. And so the authenticity of the exterior structures are founded upon the authenticity of the continuity of faith and of the same sacraments, etc. So if you if you destroy the continuity of faith, the continuity of organizational structures is practically meaningless. Uh, yes, there is a, you know, uh, it continues a, a lineage uh, of, of hierarchy that has no power, but, you know, it's, it's like a dead body, practically. Uh, you know, it looks the same in the coffin as, as you know, Grandma <laughs> looks the same in the coffin as she did the day before. But uh, there's a big difference <laughs> in grandma in the coffin than you know when you know the day before. So the same is true. But but people follow the Novus Ordo because they see only the continuity of organization. It's the same Chancery Office. People are succeeding one to another and so forth. So the real question is: Is there a continuity of faith in that, or is it a new religion? And, uh, of course, we answer that question very clearly. It is a new religion. There is no continuity of faith, uh, and therefore it must be rejected. Uh, and those who promulgate it cannot have the authority of Christ. Okay. So the next question is, at the, uh, for, the, for the readers following at home, I'll give out the page numbers. So page 97, after quoting uh, Michel extensively, you point out that to declare that you're in communion, we've already established this pretty clearly, but to declare that you are in communion with someone is to declare that you are in the same mystical body of Christ and in the same Catholic Church, which is one and the same thing. So, the question here is, can Sedevacantis and recognizing resistors claim to be in communion? Objectively, no. Uh, and I'll explain that later. It, they desire to be in communion with this new false religion and the people who promulgate it, therefore false hierarchy. They desire that. That desire ruins objectively, it's very important, their association with the Catholic Church. Mm -hmm. I say objectively because I think they all err in good faith, that is, without realizing their error. And it is a general principle that baptized Catholics, if they err in good conscience, that is not realizing their error, even if it's heresy, do not alienate themselves from the Catholic Church. See? But from the objective and external point of view, 
they are the same as Novosordites. If you desire to be subject to this false religion, part of this false religion, and subject to the false hierarchy that promulgates it, you are in the same condition as someone who is actually there. So objectively, we we are not in communion with them. And that, that's why uh, if someone from the Society of St. Pius X comes to to one of my churches and expects to receive the sacraments on a regular basis. Uh, I'll let it go for one time or something because there's just not an opportunity to correct it. But on a regular basis, if they're going back and forth, I will call them aside and say, this doesn't make any sense. If Bergoglio is your pope, then go to Bergoglio for your sacrament. If you say Bergoglio is your pope, then you should not be approaching me for sacraments. It is not in accordance with reason that you approach me for sacraments because according to your principles, I am someone that is not subject to the true Pope. And therefore, you should not be approaching me for sacraments. It would be an act of schism on your part to approach me for sacraments. Therefore, I'm not saying anything about their good conscience or I'm not saying they're, you know, making any judgments about whether they're excommunicated or anything. I'm just saying this does not make sense, and if it doesn't make sense, it can't be right. Morality is always in accordance with reason, and if something is not in accordance with reason, it is immoral in the practical order. So that's what I say to them, and you have to make a choice. You have to decide where is Catholicism. Is it in the Novus Ordo? then go to the Novus Ordo. Go to Bergoglio for your sacraments. If it is not in the Novus Ordo, then cut from the Novus Ordo entirely, as if it were Protestantism, and go only to those priests who profess no truck with them, no connection with them. But to be in the middle doesn't make any sense at all, because, as I have pointed out many times, to be in the middle means that you're schismatic no matter which way it goes. If Bergoglio is the true pope, then you're schismatic because you're not submitted to him, because he considers you to be outside. He, he, he says your apostolate is illegitimate. That's what all of the Novus Ordo popes have said concerning the SSPX. If he is not the true pope, then you're illegitimate because you are giving sacraments in union with a false pope. That is, in, in a desire to be in union with him and a recognition of a false pope. So either Bergoglio is or is not the true pope. There's no gray on that. In reality, either he is or he isn't. And so matter, no, no matter which way you go, is or is not, the Society of St. Pius X finds itself in schism, objectively. I underline that word a hundred times, yes. because again, <laughs> I, I think they're all in good conscience. You know, I think that they, they're they reacting to you know, the Novus Ordo in their own way, in their own confused way, and they're following Archbishop Lefebvre, who gave two different signals, contradictory signals about the Novus Ordo. Uh, they feel that that's the right thing to do. They, I, I have no doubt that they're in perfectly good conscience, so, so I'm not being excessively harsh with them. I'm just saying, on paper and objectively, this is the position that they are in, and I must explain that to someone. Uh, yeah. So, you know, many people excoriate me for uh, not giving sacraments to SSPX members, 
thinking that you know I'm setting myself as sort of the uh, the judge and jury for excommunication and, and so forth, and it has nothing to do with that. It has to do with being consistent. That you should not be approaching me for sacraments if Bergoglio is your pope, and if if he is not your pope, then don't go to those who do recognize him, because that is the source of unity of the Catholic Church. To be a state of a contest, as Father Disposito so beautifully said, is simply to be a Catholic when there is no Pope. Yes. That's to be a state of a contest. It's to be a Catholic when there, in a time when there is no Pope. And if, you know, in the ten days between, say, Benedict XV and Pius XI, you were to recognize some phony Pope in France or something like that, you would be a schismatic, because all Catholics yes. are required to say that the see is vacant when there is no true pope in rome mm-hmm. so yeah, the same is true now you are if he is not a true pope you are required to say he's not a true pope uh, and he would not be a true pope if he is promulgating a false religion to the catholic church mm-hmm. so, absolutely yes okay so object so if i get asked objectively no objectively no we're not in communion objectively no we're not no for as long as they desire to be in communion with and profess communion with the Novus Ordo and the false hierarchy that promulgates it. That's the answer. <laughs> okay, so you quit Cardinal Mazzella. And one of the things he says was, whereby all observe the same essential rites, the same sacraments, the same sacrifice, but that this unity flows from the unity of faith and regimen. And again, you know, I hate to drag it, drag it back, but with the mass, I keep on saying to people that you, going to Latin mass is not going to make you a Catholic. You, they have right. the mass. They have the Latin mass because you have the faith first. The faith is a principle. The mass and, and the beautiful liturgy is is the effect. The faith is a cause. And Cardinal Mazzella just says it so clearly here when he's talking about communion. It all flows from the unity of faith and regimen. Yes. We have a, you would say, a, a community or a oneness of rites with the Greek Orthodox. And they use the liturgy of St. John Chrysostom, which is a Catholic rite. The Greek uh, Uniates, the Byzantine rite, they use the same liturgy. It's all Catholic. All their sacraments are Catholic. Everything's Catholic. There is a single fly in the ointment in the Greek Orthodox, and that is on their diptychs, which are these, uh, basically these signs in the church, they have listed schismatic, uh, members of a schismatic hierarchy as people for whom they pray as hierarchy, not just, you know, souls that need prayers, but as hierarchy. That's the important point. Uh, Mm -hmm. People that they are commemorating as hierarchy and they are leaving out purposely the name of the Roman pontiff as not being a member of their hierarchy. That is the bugaboo. And therefore, that concerns regimen. See, And therefore, they are schismatics. That concerns the government of the church. And so, yes, we have a commonness. We have a fundamental commonness with the Society of St. Pius X on liturgical matters. I mean, you know... Of course, they use the John Twenty-Third Version, but that is substantially the traditional Mass. Uh, and you know, from the point of view of pure liturgy, 
I would say there's no obstacle to attending one of their masses or anything else they do from the point of view of pure liturgy. But the bugaboo is that horrid name that they place in the canon, which which shows their profession of union with him and their desire to be uh, a part of the new religion, to, to be a, a recognized branch of the new religion. And that is where we stop. So therefore, faith, and there, that, that concerns faith, both faith and regimen, that is, the Novus Ordo religion is not the same as the Catholic religion, and therefore those who promulgate it are not the true hierarchy of the Catholic Church. So both of those things are missing with regard to the Novus Ordo and those who aspire to the Novus Ordo. Mm-hmm. Because even even those who would say, well, uh, you know, I don't share the Novus Ordo ideas, I profess the Catholic faith, the fact that you would be willing to enter into communion with those who do not profess the Catholic faith ruins your profession. That if you say, I am a a co-member of the same church and the same religion as someone who does not profess the Catholic faith, that ruins your Catholicism because it ruins the unity of faith. Communion with heretics has always been considered a defection from the Catholic Church, to be in communion with heretics. Mm-hmm. Because you're showing legitimacy to them. You're saying a heresy by your actions, effectively. You're saying that those who do not profess the Catholic faith are nonetheless Catholics. And Pius XII said that the profession of the Catholic faith is a condition for membership in the Catholic Church, and he's echoing everybody on that. You have to profess the Catholic faith in order to be a Catholic. I mean, it's pretty basic. But again, <laughs> they they never answer that question whether the Novus Ordoites are Catholics or not, even objectively. They never answer the question, is this Catholicism? And, you know, I would say back to them, if it is Catholicism, then join up. If it isn't Catholicism, then why are you talking to them? Why are you yeah. not condemning them? Why can Bergoglio say what he said about contraception and we hear nothing from them, not a single word, even though they have a pedestal that could be heard around the world? We are nothing, you know, we can't, this is the best we can do is is to say this on on a radio program. But if Bishop Fele were to get up and have a news conference about Bergoglio's comment on contraception, if he were to call a news conference, he would have everybody there, and he could say whatever he wanted to about that awful statement of Bergoglio and the, all of the other things that Bergoglio has said that, that cry to heaven for, for, for some kind of uh, retribution. And there's no Catholic God, and so forth. All, oh, just a list of things that are, are a mile long, and we heard nothing from them. And I don't know if you saw the recent interview that Bishop Philly gave to some, uh, well, he had a British accent, uh, the interviewer, so I assume he was English. I don't know who, I can't remember who he was, but... You know, I haven't watched it because I've been told about it, and I I, I hate watching car crash TV. I, I, can't, I just can't watch it, those things that, you know, they're so... <laughs> They're so toe-curlingly awful that that you can't watch it. And, and I've been told that that's what it is, so I, I haven't watched it. It is a horror show. It, it is. It <laughs> would go under horror. 
uh, you know, as far as a category, like genre of movies, this would be horror. And uh, <laughs> the, the man asks Bishop Fellay point-blank questions taken from statements that Bishop Fellay himself has made in the past. Mm-hmm. And Bishop Fellay just, well, you'd have to see it, but he backs down on everything and gives very, very fuzzy and compromising answers, denying effectively what he said. Uh, there was one point where he talked about the women's rights and what St. Pius X said about women's rights. And uh, that that uh, and he said, do you adhere to what St. Pius X said? And then there was all of this skating around and moving around about whether, you know, well, does that what St. Pius X means? Or, I mean, the answer to that question was, yes, I adhere to it. Of course you do. He said it. What else would you do? Because I adhere to it. You know, the, but uh, it, it is really, it's embarrassing when you, you're embarrassed for Bishop Fellay as he's speaking. You just feel uh, this is so embarrassing for him. He should have given answers as point-blank and clear as the questions came. The man put some very good questions to him, and he got gobbledygook as answers back from Bishop Fellay. And you can see that Bishop Fellay was very, very much interested in pleasing the world and and being accepted by the world, and also being acceptable to the modernist Vatican, so as to say nothing that would offend anybody. It was really pitiful, and it kind of made me sick that they have captured practically all of the people who, by instinct, were were reacting to modernism. They have captured them, and now they are in this pen, so to speak, ready to be brought to the slaughterhouse of the Novus Ordo, as, as, as we may even see this year in this so-called Year of Mercy, ready to be... To, to be brought in. I can think of the, the big pens of cattle that you see in Chicago that are mm-hmm. ready to go to the slaughterhouse. It's a terrible realization. Uh, if Archbishop Lefebvre had given a clear signal about what the Novus Ordo was and how to react to it, we would see an entirely different picture today. But this is the product of all of that diplomacy that he was using with regard to the Novus Ordo and that attempt to be recognized by them. And, and it, it, it is a terrible effect and, and just a result that you can only cry about when you mm-hmm. see the performance of Bishop Feli in this interview. It, it's, it's just appalling. Well, I haven't watched it, and I don't know, I might, I might watch it at, at some point, but one of my uh, friends, uh, not, he doesn't work for Jew Restoration, but one of my friends made two comments. He said he came across as a very weak Novus Ordo bishop, and the other thing was that this is practically a rite of passage for entry into the Novus Ordo sect to get ambushed by secular journalists. Yes. So, yes, it uh, it proved his his metal, so to speak, uh, <laughs> with regard to the Novus Ordo, that uh, he has become uh, he has, I would say, abandoned uh, certainly Catholic attitudes uh, toward uh, toward all the subjects that they talked about, and and he abandoned things that he said in the past very clearly, and he, he was just uh, wiped up 
by by the interviewer. I mean, when you when he was finished, there was, there was nothing left. I mean, the interviewer was so clear, challenging him on things that he had said earlier, and you know, in a different circumstance when he wasn't facing the world. I mean, I said sarcastically that it should be entitled "The Spirit of Martyrdom." What if he had been before a Roman magistrate, ready to throw him to the lions? What? It was very similar to it. This was the world talking mm-hmm. to him, and the world with all of its dogmas demanding adherence to worldly dogmas, and he caved in on every single one of them. Yeah, in my opinion, and I think okay. in the opinion of most people. Well, I can't comment because I haven't watched it, but I may. Well, you uh, have to. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, maybe I'll, you know, after lunch I'll grab some grab some popcorn, sit down, and watch it. <laughs> Maybe first uh, watch Frankenstein or one of those others, like or King Kong versus Godzilla, and then you would be sort of in the, in the same mood to to look at that. <laughs> okay. So, um, getting back to the uh, getting back to the document to finish off, you uh, quote Father Dominic Palmieri, the, the Jesuit, and also Journey, although reading the footnote. You have some reservations about Journet. He doesn't seem to be completely uh, 100% there. No, Journet has some uh, very odd ideas in that book on the church that are not shared by any of the traditional theologians. He speaks of unity of speculative orientation and practical orientation. So he reduces the unity of faith to a unity of speculative orientation. You know, faith is a firm assent. It's not an orientation. It's not a, a direction. It is an assent of the intellect, according to all of the traditional teaching of the Catholic Church. So he reduces faith, therefore, to simply a law of belief. I mean, it is a law of belief, but it's not only a law of belief in the sense that this is what you're supposed to think today. <laughs> See, I mean, the, the, the Communist Party has a law of belief. And, you know, you think this today, tomorrow you might think something else. Even the Pope is subjected to the faith itself. You see, it's not something that is reformable as a law is. It's not merely a law. The Pope himself is, is subjected to the teachings of the Catholic Church. And, and so that's why it's a very dangerous way that he, and I explained that in a long footnote there, but it's very dangerous to call it that. Uh, unity of worship, unity of orientation, and unity of communion. So he uh, substitutes orientation for faith and the government of the church. Orientation is a is a very soft word. Yes, yeah, right. It's uh, you know we're not electing people for orientation in this country. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, uh, so I I would say he's sort of a, a mild modernist. Uh, Renee, you know, mm-hmm. so so I, okay. I but I threw him in just uh, because you know, I, I was bringing up practically all of the major theologians. Well, thank you for that, my lord. We would like to remind you that you are listening to the Anti-Modernist Reader, Chapter Six, Communion, Rats in His New Ecclesiology, on the member-supported Restoration Radio Network. I am your host, Matthew Gaskin, and I am joined by His Lordship Bishop Sanborn of Most Holy Trinity Seminary, Brooksville, Florida. Today we've been discussing the traditional nature of communion in the Catholic sense. 
We want to remind you that this anti-modernist reader show is a production of the member-supported Restoration Radio Network. All rights are reserved and any duplication without explicit written permission is forbidden. To obtain permission, please write to mail at truerestoration.org. So in the document, we're now on page 99 and we're moving on to part C. In this, we begin to talk about the analogy of the the body of Christ's Catholic Church, the mystical body, to a human body. What is this analogy, my Lord, and how far does it stretch? First of all, when you say analogy, that means there are some things that are similar and some things that are dissimilar. So you always have to understand that. And whenever you're talking about analogies, you always have to understand where the borderlines are. Otherwise, you make some very serious errors You know, between what is similar, what is dissimilar. First of all, man has a spiritual part, which is his immortal soul, and then that, we say, is the form of his body. It gives his humanness to the the matter of his body. So God formed man from the slime of the earth and breathed into him a soul. That soul made the slime of the earth, according to God's creation, into a human body. So it gave it its definition as a human body. The church's spiritual and supernatural part, by analogy, is faith, charity, grace, and the divine power and authority that is given to it by God, as well as all of the spiritual influence of Christ and of the Holy Ghost. So these are all invisible things. They might have visible effects. You might see the effect of faith uh, the, the, when you recite the creed, or the effect of charity, that is when you do a charitable act, or, or the church's charity toward the poor. Uh, you see the effect of grace, say like in a very holy nun. You see the effect of authority when uh, a law comes down. You see, But the authority itself is something invisible that is communicated by Christ to the church. Then you have all of the spiritual influence uh, and protection of Christ and the Holy Ghost. St. Thomas Aquinas said, when we say, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church, in the Creed, we are saying, according to him, I believe in the Holy Ghost directing the Holy Catholic Church. Is that the, the object of your belief is this influence of the Holy Ghost upon the Church. And that also is invisible, Yet we see the visible effect, and that is the Catholic Church has never contradicted itself over all of these ages of ages, and even when under attack and under pressure to contradict itself, never, never did. And that could never have happened by human causes. That is a sign of the protection of Christ. We have also seen its wonderful expansion over all of the ages. And its wonderful vitality, even when it's torn down by heresies and all sorts of other hard problems, it rises up again stronger. That is all the influence of the Holy Ghost, which is invisible. The Church's material part, on the other hand, is its visible society with its members and institutions. So the members of the Church constitute its body, the whole mass of Catholics, 
and its institutions, the, the, the hierarchy. Of, that is, you know, what is visible, visible structures of the Catholic Church. So you have to distinguish between, therefore, an internal spiritual communion and an external corporeal communion. Those are two different things. And many mistakes are made by confusing these two ways of being in communion. All right. So in that case, would the church remain in communion with an occult heretic? No, an occult heretic is divided from the spiritual, invisible communion of the church, although he remains united to the external corporeal communion. That is, in the eyes of God, he is not a Catholic. As God sees him, he's not a Catholic. We might say, in reality, uh, he is not a Catholic. But because he's occult, nobody knows it, he retains an external corporeal communion. So he, he hides his heresy, and, and therefore he is capable of receiving communion, of receiving matrimony, confirmation, he could be ordained, he could be elected a bishop or appointed a bishop, he could be elected a pope, because those ties have not been severed because of the occult quality of his heresy. Inside, he is cut off from Christ, because heresy overcomes the essential condition of baptism, which is faith. And Cardinal Francelin calls the Catholic Church the Society of Faith. Faith being the, the necessary link with Christ. Not even a mortal sin will separate you from that link of being attached to the mystical body of Christ. Only faith, or lack of faith, I should say, will separate you from the mystical body of Christ. And so heresy committed internally separates you from Christ and his church. So following on from that, well, I was just going to ask my Lord, following on from that, the next question would be, would an internally repentant yet unabsolved excommunicant regain unity with the church? If he had perfect contrition for his sin, <clears throat> because you need perfect contrition in order to achieve the state of grace, without confession. So if you are if you have perfect contrition, you are restored to the state of grace. So an excommunicate would be internally and spiritually in the church, however, still externally and corporeally outside of the church until he's absolved externally. There has to be an, uh, an external absolution from excommunication, an external lifting of the excommunication. That's why when Protestants join the Catholic Church, they have to kneel before the priest and have the excommunication lifted from them. It's not enough just to say, sorry that I have been a Protestant all these years. That's not sufficient. He has to be restored externally to the Church. So that's how it works. So there is a, an internal communion and an external communion. Likewise, someone who is excommunicated falsely, therefore, you know, he's innocent, but he has been excommunicated, he loses external communion, but he retains internal communion. Mm -hmm. 
Okay. But he must submit to the excommunication. He can't say, well, I'm, I'm justified internally, therefore uh, I am not going to submit to that. You know, assuming that for a moment that John Paul II was a true pope, the SSPX bishops should have submitted to the excommunication mm-hmm. because they are required to do so even if they thought themselves to be innocent of any wrongdoing. So if the so we've answered my next question, which was whether there's more than one communion, which there is internal and external. So if the church makes a judgment about communion, does it make a judgment in the internal sense, the external sense, or both? The church makes a judgment only in the external sense. The church does not judge concerning the people's interior dispositions, except perhaps in the confessional, but that's considered internal forum. The law of the church makes no judgment concerning people's internal uh, dispositions. And that's why the church, and Cardinal Franzelin says this, the church considers externally all heretics to be in bad faith. That is, if you're an Anglican, you are considered to be an Anglican in bad faith externally and legally, that you are considered to be a formal heretic externally and legally, uh, and that's the way the Church treats you. Now, what you are before God is God's knowledge. You know, He sees into your soul. If you are in, in, in invincible ignorance, you don't know any better, and you have all the other conditions that are necessary for the state of grace, which we won't go into right now, you could belong to the Church uh, you you would actually, if you achieve the state of grace, you would belong internally to the church and externally in by desire. That by at least implicit desire, you would belong to the body of the church. That is necessary for salvation, at least by implicit desire, that you belong to the body of the church, because you can't separate the two, the body and the soul of the church, as if they were two separate things that uh, had nothing to do one with the other. They are very much connected. So that explains why the church always says, you know, that that if outside the church there is no salvation, it's assuming that those who are outside the church are there by their own choice and culpably. That uh, Council of Foreign says that pagans and Jews and so forth are all going to hell. That's because it is talking about them externally and Mm -hmm. legally. Uh, yeah. as they are seen as a, as a heretical or unbelieving body. They are assumed to be that. Just as when the policeman pulls you over for speeding, he assumes that you are speeding culpably. He doesn't come up to you and say, look, I know you had some great reason to be speeding, <laughs> and I really am in, totally indisposed to giving you a ticket. You know, Just tell me what why you were going 100 miles an hour or whatever. And you say, yes, officer, I really had a great reason. Thank you very much. And (laughs) that's not the way it occurs. The presumption is that you were speeding culpably and you have to start talking your way out of it. You know, uh, uh, well, officer, you know, I'm sorry. You know, my speedometer isn't working or, you know, I just, or my wife is having a baby or, you know, there's all sorts of things. I'm sure policemen have heard everything. Uh, women usually start crying, 
uh, it's, you know, it's the first thing to do <laughs> and, or my husband's going to kill me or, or yeah. so forth. You know, there has to, you have to talk your way out of it. Or, you know, if you shoot someone in cold blood, you get arrested. You, it is assumed that you did it culpably. You have to talk your way out of that in court <laughs> that, you know, this was self-defense or there was some other, you know, extenuating circumstance. But that's the way the law works. And so there's nothing unusual about this. The church does not judge concerning internal things. And that's what the Feniites do not understand, that they do not make that, that, that distinction, very important distinction, is that all of those very strong statements, which are absolutely true concerning the non-salvation of those who are outside of the church, concern the external forum and the presumption that they are culpable uh, in the external forum. Mm-hmm. Uh, they they fail to make that distinction. So the next question would be, and this comes uh, directly from the document, if internal communion is all that was necessary for salvation, would we have a church, a rule of faith, a magisterium, or apostolic authority? No, we would have a Protestant church. <laughs> yes, exactly. we would. <laughs> yeah, of course we would, yeah. Very nice Protestant <laughs> church. Uh, the the Protestants believe only in that internal communion. Um, and the church for them is an organization set up by human beings with a common uh, interpretation of Scripture. They, they have a commonness usually that is fostered by being in the same area in, or, you know, the same country or, or, or having the same leader who teaches them. And there's a, you know commonness in those things, and they found churches. So the church for them, you know, the external organization of the church is not something divinely founded for them. It is simply a human organization that is a tent in which people can worship and receive their sacraments and hear sermons and sing hymns. And so there would be no Catholic church without that external organization. That is so important. That's what brings about that communion, that it is an external organization that everyone adheres to. There is an external profession of faith that everyone adheres to, an external obedience to the Roman pontiff and to the hierarchy that everyone adheres to. If that is not there, you, you don't have the Catholic Church. You, you just have a, a group of people who, you know, as I said, like Protestants, who have a similar experience, a religious experience, that's all. Yeah, well, you can see it quite clearly in England. Um, the Church of England tends to be full of, you know, reasonably sort of middle class, but quite po-faced, you know, fairly bland people. Um, perfectly nice people, perfectly lovely people, yeah, sort of subjectively, perfectly nice to get along with. But then the Methodists and the Baptists are a bit more sort of, you know, the... the the people on the street, and then the Episcopalians and the sort of evangelicals. Well, it's not the Episcopalians, the evangelicals. They're uh, they're sort of you know just it's just a party when when you uh, you know if you if you go to to their places. And a lot of these, uh, well, I think I've said it before on this sh- uh, on one of these shows that there's a there's a well-known saying in England which is the uh, Church of England is just the Conservative Party at Brer. Um and <laughs> they're just full of fairly. Perfectly, perfectly nice, perfectly lovely, polite English people who do charitable works at the weekend, but um, it, it it does tend to be quite 
of a certain social set. You either fit in or you don't. Yes, uh, and and there's no unity of faith. You can believe whatever you please. Oh yeah. Uh, oh, you know there might be suggestions from the Anglican divines as to what you should think, but that's that's as far as it goes. And then, you know, unity of government. Uh, I mean, can they really tell you what to do? Uh, can they do they get down into the depths of your conscience and tell you that contraception is evil and if you practice contraception you're going to hell? I mean, do they do they divorce and remarriage is is contrary to the sacred scriptures and the law of God and if you do that you're going to hell? And that I would tend be a to bit, think that that, <laughs> that would be a bit rich coming from the Church of England. I would say so. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, Henry VIII got around that by killing the people that that was were in his way. So, uh, yeah. or or they died. Uh, you know, I don't think there was ever a point where he actually committed bigamy. You know, where he, he just divorced someone. I think that he had them done in, uh, and then uh, moved on, <laughs> or else they died on him, or there, he thought of some other way of dissolving the the, the bond somehow. So. Yeah. I guess they would say, well, Henry VIII, you know, never had, had more than one wife. Or... <laughs> yeah, and unfortunately, and it is to be lamented, going around lopping lopping the heads off your enemies is kind of frowned upon in this country. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, we we sort of look back at happier times. Um, so <laughs> let's move on to the next one here. Um, can can interior justification be detached from adherence to the church? No. Cardinal Billot especially is very clear on that, that there must be some attachment to the body of the church in order to achieve justification, at least by desire and at least by implicit desire, and I'll explain that. You cannot merely belong to the soul of the church without any reference to its body because they constitute a single thing, a single church, and and just are two aspects of the same church. So you can't adhere to one and repudiate the other. You can adhere to the uh, body of the church either externally and perfectly, uh, which is by being a, a member of the Catholic Church by through baptism and through profession of faith and submission to the hierarchy, or you can belong to it by explicit desire, that is, where you know it's the true church, you want to be a part of it, but you haven't joined it yet through no fault of your own. So, for example, a catechumen has the explicit desire to become a Catholic. That is sufficient. That is a sufficient adherence to the body of the church. That is, by an explicit desire. Now, if he should die before he is baptized, he, uh, and assuming he's in the state of grace, he goes to heaven because he has that explicit desire. So, for example, St. Eremenciana was, was baptized in her blood. Uh, she, had, she was a, a catechumen. She had an explicit desire to become Catholic. The Fenites logically must say that she went straight to hell, or some of them come up with the absurdity that, well, there was a pail of water available as she was being cut down by the soldiers, and somebody threw it on her and said the words of baptism before she expired. That's right. what they say. Okay. Well, I contradict scripture, but never mind, we'll move on. 
Well, it's not scripture, <laughs> but it contradicts the acts of the martyrs because the acts of yeah, the martyrs are she yeah. was baptized in her blood. Yeah, the most the doesn't most mention the pale the of water. Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> which, which does bring into question the Roman martyrology, really. Because you would oh, have to question. You know, what, what's your evidence for that pale? <laughs> Except your own imagination. <laughs> I <sighs> think that if the circumstances were different, they would have said it. <laughs> you know. But in any case, you can have an implicit desire, which is just as good. And an implicit desire is this, that if you achieve the state of grace through the necessary, uh, all of the necessary acts to achieve that, and I won't go into that now because that's a whole other question. If you achieve the state of grace when you are externally outside of the church, say like a Protestant, you have necessarily the virtue of charity. The virtue of charity disposes you to desire anything that is the will of God mm-hmm. and to fulfill it but it is the will of God that you become a Catholic. Therefore, by having the virtue of charity, you implicitly desire to become a Catholic. That, too, is sufficient, because you're ordered to the Catholic Church by your desire, and the body of the Catholic Church by desire. And that that is what is known as the baptism of desire. It's difficult to achieve, and ignorance is only a condition of it, the invincible ignorance does not justify, as the Feniites accuse us of saying, does not justify. It is a condition of it. Now, many Protestants are not in invincible ignorance. Either they don't care, they commit a a sin of infidelity through lack of care even of what is true and what is false, or they have grave suspicions that their religion is false if they manage to think about it for about five minutes. (laughs) <laughs> that the Holy Ghost inspires everyone to pick up the scriptures and, and interpret it uh, as he wills, in other words, as the Holy Ghost wills, and yet all of these people are squabbling and have been squabbling for the past 500 years as to what the scriptures mean. Now, that's absurd. <laughs> you don't have to be a brain to figure that out, that there's something really dreadfully wrong with this religion that it assigns error and confusion to the Holy Ghost, who is the spirit of truth. Now, you know, if you are sincere about religion and you think about that, the, your whole Protestant religion comes crashing down. So, you know, I, I think that many, if not most, Protestants are in bad faith for that reason, that they highly suspect that their religion is false and probably highly suspect that the Catholic religion is true, but do nothing about it. Those people are condemned. But the Church is just saying it is possible to have the other scenario where someone has an implicit desire because he has achieved the state of grace before baptism or before being received into the Catholic Church. Right. So if we move on into Part D now to summarize the Catholic teaching on communion, you make the point in the document that the communion consists of relation of member to head and member to member founded on a valid baptism, obviously, we've just talked about that, the profession of the Catholic faith, that's another obvious, and a submission to the Roman pontiff or to the legitimate hierarchy of the church. So what is the case for infants? They have a valid baptism, but they cannot yet profess the faith or assent to submit to the Pope. 
Yes, the uh, theologians commonly teach, uh, and the, the Church has never contradicted it, that I think Pius XII even spoke of it, uh, but don't quote me on that. <laughs> okay. uh, but that a validly baptized infant is a member of the Catholic Church, both internally and externally, full-fledged member, even if he should be baptized by a Jew or a Muslim or uh, by a Protestant, as long as it's valid, even if he should be the child of Protestants or Jews or, or anything else, he is a full-fledged member of the Catholic Church until externally he achieves the age of reason where he is said to profess externally, is considered to profess externally the sect uh, in which he is being raised. So when he achieves the age of reason, he moves into a different category externally. Uh, that is, that if he's raised by Anglicans, he is considered an Anglican at the time, let's say seven years old, when you know all achieve the age of reason, you know, if they're normal. Then he's considered to be a Protestant, a validly baptized Protestant, you know, if his mm -hmm. baptism was valid. But that separates him from the Catholic Church, because his profession of faith is is non-existent. It, there's a profession of heresy, or that is, he is presumed by law to have the profession of heresy. Internally, the Church does not judge. See, it doesn't see it, so it cannot judge it, and only God sees it. The, the, the child might be in good conscience. Maybe most children probably are. He might continue to be a, a, a Catholic internally and have the state of grace, and it will by implicit desire to belong to the true church. Mm -hmm. see, okay. So that, that's, that's uh... and so we're sort of wrapping up here now with my last uh, few questions, and we've already covered this to death, but we're, we're summarizing now. So, is it possible to have a one-sided or a half incorporation in the church? I.e., is partial communion possible? Uh, no, it isn't because of the triangle principle that I gave, or the pin in the balloon. Mm. Uh, there must be an integrity of those three aspects of worship, of government, and of faith. Just as you cannot be a little pregnant or a little dead. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm partially pregnant or I'm partially dead. Either you're dead or not, either you're pregnant or not. So also, either you're in communion or not, based on the integrity of those three points of the triangle. So a partial communion was something cooked up by the Protestants. See, yep. they, they're all in partial communion with one another because they all find a certain commonness and a certain lack of commonness among each other. And so, you know, they have these fundamental beliefs. You know, you accept the Lord, the Christ is the Lord. That's about it in this country. You know, if you accept Christ as the Lord, well, you can be a Protestant in our church. And, and, uh, don't, don't, and forget, don't forget that you must dislike Catholics as well. Yeah, you must dislike Catholics. That's <laughs> the one unifying factor among all Protestants is that the Catholics are wrong and bad. And, uh, and uh, that's the one unifying thing. Other than that, you know, it's up for grabs, whatever you want, except some of them would say that you have to say Christ is the Lord, whatever the Lord means. So they're all in partial communion. That that was cooked up more explicitly by Kuhlmann, who was a Protestant theologian, he's dead now, who was a personal friend of Ratzinger. No. And Ratzinger learned his partial <laughs> communion business 
from Kulman. Because no. that's the way we do it in the Protestant church. We're all on partial communion. I don't believe it, my lord. Don't believe it. Well, you don't believe because no, uh, I know <laughs> Cardinal Ratzinger was a, a you know a real diehard conservative, as we all know. He was. Yeah, and you know he wore all those beautiful things when he was supposedly pope, and those red shoes, and all that shows his his attachment to Catholicism. I'm being sarcastic, of course. Uh, no, he he was the architect of Lumen Gentium, which is all of the new ecclesiology, which we'll study in the next show. He was the architect of that. Uh, he probably wrote it. And so he was very much influenced by all of the Protestant thinking. So that's that's the end of my questions. We'll wrap up the show here then. Do you have anything else to add, my Lord, before we before we close the show? I would say that based on everything I've said, if you haven't already cleared up your mind about whether the Novus Ordo is Catholic or not, now is the time to clear up your mind. Now that you know these principles of the, the nature of the Church, you have to decide whether the Novus Ordo religion is the true religion or not. And you have to order your life based on that. And you can't slip and slide in some sort of gray fog between its being Catholic and its being not Catholic. You know, your salvation depends upon it. You, you can't claim ignorance in that. You're being told. You must make a profession either in favor of it or against it, just as we must either be with Christ or against him, as he said. We can't be in the middle, and yet a lot of these traditionalists want to be in the middle between what they see in a foggy manner as some remnants of Catholicism in the Novus Ordo and what they see as doctrinal continuity in the traditional camp. They are purposely confused about it. They do not make any decisions, and they go back and forth according to their own good pleasure. And that is not pleasing to God. As we close out this episode, I'd just like to summarize by saying that we've discussed the traditionally Catholic view on uh, communion in the Church. And next episode, we will be fixing bayonets and charging at the modernists as we discuss the Vatican II notion of communion with all of its horrid implications. Once again, my Lord, thank you for your time, and we will talk to you again next month as we continue this series. God bless you. Well, I will. I will look forward to that bayonet charge. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> thank you. Goodbye. Goodbye. If you have any questions for Bishop Sanborn or feedback on this episode, please contact us at antimodernist at truerestoration.org, and we will pass along your questions or comments to His Lordship. All of us here at Member Supported Restoration Radio hope that you found this show to be informative, helpful, or beneficial to you and to your faith. In return, please think of offering a Mass, a Rosary, or even simply an Ave for our work the next time you pray. For the Restoration, I am Matthew Gaskin. May God bless you.
This program was brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novus Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovusOrdoWatch.org. That's NovusOrdoWatch.org.